0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Philipp Kühl, and I'm the Assistant Director at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. And today I'm joined by Matthias Thun Jørgensen. Matthias is an Associate Professor of Tourism Management and the Head of Center for Tourism Research at Roskilde University here in Denmark. He's also one of the co-authors of the recently published book, Chinese Outbound Tourist Behavior, that explores the evolution of the Chinese outbound tourism industry, the behavior of Chinese tourists abroad, and how the industry is continuously affected by regulations and policymaking. Welcome, Matthias. Thank you very much, Philip. Matthias, you have been researching Chinese outbound tourism for several years. I remember that we met in southern China when you were doing fieldwork for your doctoral dissertation. I think it must have been around 2014, 2015, something like that. What sparked your interest in Chinese outbound tourism?
1: Well, I did my, my master's degree in tourism management, and I was going to do an internship in Shanghai, and I kind of by coincidence, actually, and then I sort of fell in love with the country and became interested in the country and the country's tourism, and particularly outbound tourism, because it was a really interesting market in growth. And then I ended up doing also my PhD dissertation at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. So I was living in for three years in, in Hong Kong, and my interest all of my work in a sense.
0: Great. Due to the pandemic, Chinese travelers are not really to be seen anywhere in Europe anymore. But before the pandemic in 2019, we saw them everywhere, especially here in Copenhagen, where I am right now. But when I was growing up in Denmark in the 80s and 90s, I traveled most of Europe and many other parts of the world with my parents. And I don't really remember seeing any Chinese tourists other than in the Chinatowns of, uh, say, London or Kuala Lumpur. Could you take us through the development of the Chinese tourism over the years, just to get our listeners up to speed um, on how the Chinese travelers went from being virtually non-existent just a couple of decades ago and, mm-hmm. until pre-pandemic, where we saw them travel everywhere from Greenland to the South Pole?
1: Yeah, so so Chinese tourism is a relatively new phenomenon, and especially also compared with many other countries, and especially compared with the Western countries, China outbound tourism is really really new. If we look at time from the founding of the People's Republic in '49 until around '85, uh, around mid '80s. Basically, there was no outbound tourism at all, and you only had these small political delegations and this kind of thing. And then we got some legislation that allowed for travel agencies to be formed. We got this approved destination status scheme that allowed for tours to specific countries, sort of allowed by the government, uh, under certain conditions. And that started the ball rolling, uh, and that was not until 90s that things really started to happen. And that to look like what I think we think of maybe when we think uh, about Chinese tourism today. So uh, yeah, so this is something that is very new, and maybe since the 2000s we had extreme growth rates of around uh, 20% year on year, and then it came down a little bit after the 2000s. 2013, but still with plus 10% growth rates. And I think in 2019, we had 170 million bed nights abroad uh, from Chinese tourists, which is by far the biggest tourism outbound market in the world.
0: You mentioned the ADS, the Approved Destination Scheme, where Chinese tourists are allowed to travel to certain destinations. Apart from this, what would you say are the main differences between the Chinese outbound tourism market and that of other countries? I think the ADS, the Approved
1: Destination Status, is just one of a number of different political legislations or decrees that has shaped Chinese outbound tourism in a significant way. And that's also partly what our contribution to the book is about. Certainly, that's a very important difference because it's not standard that uh, source countries has this very, very large effect on how a tourist market develops over time. So I think that's definitely one thing. And another thing sort of related to that is that the thing that really got the ball rolling in terms of Chinese tourism was the establishing of the China National Tourism Association, and I think unlike other uh, tourism markets where a tourism association is primarily there to help their country market themselves and track tourism, the CNTA, the China National Tourism Association, is much more also a political, in a sense, organization. They are under the control of the government, in a sense, and they help the government implement different kinds of uh, of things that, 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 that they want. So if they want tourism to certain countries, they can uh, help that this country should uh, get the ADS. If they don't want it, they can... Uh, withdraw it again. So this is also something that is that is different, I think uh, between China outbound tourism and outbound tourism uh, from other countries. And then of course, in addition to that, I think big differences is just the, the sheer size of the market and therefore also the potential of the market. And I think this in and of itself is also a key difference because that just makes the market more attractive, but also more difficult in some sense to control. And that is also partly related to this very, very quick development of the market, which I think is also unique. The market has developed from nothing uh, to the biggest outbound market in around 30 years time. That That has also meant that there are certain difficulties. For example, we've seen some problems with Chinese tourists misbehaving and these kinds of things. And a lot of that is down to people who have no experience traveling at all, all of a sudden having a huge palette of opportunities to go abroad in a very, very short time span. Whereas I think that a lot of Western countries, we've probably gone through a similar development, but we had more time to adjust to the opportunities. And then you had to travel to places very close to you. And then it slowly expanded. Whereas with Chinese tourism, it happened all at once.
0: So you could say that 60 or 70 years of developing travel industry just happened overnight in China, as opposed to most Western countries. Yeah. Exactly. You mentioned the approved destination scheme. What are the criteria for awarding countries with this approval? First of all, it, it's important to be aware that it's not only
1: setting requirements for, for the receiving countries, it's actually also controlling the travel agencies, basically saying if you want mm. to be allowed to send tourists to this country, you have to follow these rules. So it's also so it's both ways. It also goes both ways in the sense that the requirements are similar. So there should be, for example, one of the requirements, and I think there are seven, and I don't think I can list all of them off the top of my head. But one of them, for example, is in order to get ADS, you also need to generate tourism into China, right? So there has to be this reciprocity. There's also that you have to have political relations with China. So politics come into it again uh, there, right? You have to be able to guarantee some kind of safety for the travelers coming to the country. There's also requirements on accessibility that you have to have flight connections or other uh, means of transport to actually get to the country. I think sort of the through line is this reciprocity, right? If you want our tourists, then then you have also have to sort of give us uh, something back and also to guarantee safety and all these other things.
0: Okay so almost trade off yeah yeah all right um, so but your chapter in the book describes how tourism has and is continuously affected by policymaking and regulations could you elaborate a bit on how the chinese government uses outbound tourism as a as a political tool uh, for example, this ADS, I
1: think is a good example. You have to do certain things. You have to build up favorable relations before you even, you were even considered to receive ADS. And then we have some concrete examples, right, of where it's used much more directly. For example, there was a case around uh, 2000 that I think we also mentioned in the chapter where there was political intrigue between China and Turkey. And basically that ended with package of incentives, that China offered to Turkey, and one of those was ADS status. So basically, you get ADS status, and then we sort of agree on this, right? So so it can be used to negotiate, in a sense. There's also the example of withholding ADS status, where we saw that Canada received ADS much later than other countries because the prime minister of Canada at the time was basically kind of talking too much about China's human rights the prime minister at the time also met with Dalai Lama. So there was sort of reasons that they would help back from, from receiving ADS in the first place. So there are these specific examples, and there's also been examples where it's not ADS, but we've seen both with Norway, with Sweden, with Korea, that you had some kind of specific instances. And then maybe it's not ADS, but the government will ask travel agencies essentially to to just not send tourists to, to, to those countries. And as part of my PhD project, I spoke to many of the agencies in China the time when Norway was blacklisted. Not officially, but when you talk to those agencies, they, they have all been told that they should not book tours to Norway. And then, of course, as the Chinese do, they find their ways around it, right? So they just book a tour to, to Denmark that happened to, to pass pass by Norway, maybe, or to Sweden, and that happens to pass by Norway or something. So there are a ton of different examples, but I think The most important way that they exert this power is through this kind of preventive effect, right? That just countries thinking that they don't want to provoke China because they are afraid that they will lose business in general. And part of that business is outbound tourism, I think can have a tremendous uh, preventive effect on how other countries act towards China or talk about China or how they collaborate with Taiwan and
0: so on. You mentioned in the chapter that it's used as soft power, but you also use the word weaponize. And the word weaponize, I would think to most people, has very negative connotations. And the two examples that you gave, is that examples of how the Chinese government is weaponizing outbound tourism? Maybe that's a strong word,
1: but understood in the sense that you can sort of threaten di- directly or indirectly others' into to doing as you please i think you can think of that as a way of essentially weaponizing tourism right not not in i mean you can't attack anyone with with outbound tourism but you can definitely attack an economy for example we also mentioned the example of the small island nation of palau in the chapter which actually did, didn't have ads but again many Chinese business people in general, but but also in, in tourism are good at finding these sort of gray areas. So so somehow had it, it had just been accepted that Chinese groups were going to Palau without ADS for, for a number of years. And then when it sort of came up that this nation were having diplomatic ties with Taiwan instead of mainland China. All of a sudden, these agencies are basically being told that, remember, this country does not have ADS. You can be penalized if you actually send tourists there, right? And then they they see a huge, huge drop in numbers of incoming tourists. And actually, at the time, 50% of their GDP came from tourism, and 50% of that tourism was from China. So that's a huge blow to a very small country. So I think that could be maybe an example of, of, of,
0: uh, of kind of weaponizing tourism in a sense. Uh, the word weaponizing is quite fitting but are you saying that they're using the ads in the beginning as an incentive and then they create a dependence on the steady flow of tourists which allows them to weaponize the outbound tourism industry yeah I, i
1: think that's that's precise i don't think it's that it's um that deliberate that now we're going to make you dependent and then we're going to attack you with it. So I don't think that's the the purpose of ADS or of tourism, but it's definitely a thing when in place the, that they are ready to use, as we can see, right? So they're not afraid
0: to use that as as a tool in the, in the toolbox. Very interesting. But if you use the word weaponized, that means that someone someone needs to handle a weapon. So which mechanisms does the government use to exert control over a vast travel industry like uh, the Chinese? You said they tell the travel agencies to do this and that, but mm-hmm. how, how yeah. is that communicated?
1: Well, they have to, uh, again, you have to be registered as a travel agency by the CNCA. You can get that permission revoked. When you talk to these agencies uh, and, and they tell you this in confidence, they don't tell you who tells them to do this. So I'm not aware of the direct line who tells these agencies directly, but you can say that you need this permission to run as a travel agency that was just established already with the Travel Agency Act in, in 85 and going forward. So you need to be registered as a travel agency. And I think the power sort of lies there, right? That there's a risk that you can get that permission revoked yeah. in sort of the worst case to have to stay in line in a sense.
0: Okay. But um, despite this uh, weaponizing and use of soft power abroad, the Chinese tourists have been very welcome in, in many countries and many destinations I know have been preparing for the Chinese, changing their satellite to having Chinese channels and having Chinese newspapers, Chinese speaking staff and things like that to accommodate the Chinese travelers. And they spend a lot of money abroad when traveling. So, of course, they're welcome, seen from the perspective of the tourism industry. How can the government allow this outflow of, of cash from China? But there's also a lot of money coming into China. So
1: I, I think it's, a, it's. I mean, in a sense, it's also a way of keeping the trade balance. And then I think the Chinese government, they see this Chinese tourist going out as a, as a positive thing that's the economic side but there's also this idea that you know you you go out and you spread Chinese culture and uh, and you want it at least <laughs> for for a time to be sort of integrated into the not only the world economy but also into the culture mm. right so uh, so uh, so I think and I think tourism is seen as an important component in that and then we see we've also seen like opening of of cultural centers and all over the world and these kind of efforts so it's Part of it is soft power. Another part of it is to just be. If you want to be a superpower, you also need to be influential in terms of culture and in terms of people knowing about your culture and what you represent. And then again, you know, of course, it's it's problematic when, for example, Chinese tourists they if they don't behave, uh, you know, as as they yep. should. Uh, we already t- talked about a couple of these sort of pieces of legislation that we find important and a third one would be this Chinese tourism law that was implemented in in 2013 and that was specifically implemented to combat some of these problems with misbehavior but, uh, among other things but also um, there was this problem of of these zero fare tours where basically you could you buy a, a tour that is essentially free and then the travel agent basically makes the money back from commission from basically, uh, almost forcing the tourists to buy stuff on the tours, and and that also becomes problematic in in many different ways. So so I think this Chinese tourism law is also a reflection of of the fact that image so is, is is also part of this of uh, outbound tourism. We want these tourists to represent our country, and we want want them to do it in in the right way. So you have to behave and. It's, again, also maybe a little bit similar to all the stories up to the Beijing Olympics, that Mm. that sort of the locals were being trained in how to behave in a way that would fit world culture, in a sense.
0: Yes, I remember that. I actually lived in Beijing uh, during the Olympics. I remember quite a lot of their educational campaigns, do this and do that, and so on. Okay, so that that's that's uh, uh, quite interesting. The 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 tourism law that was implemented, because you would think that if you want more influence, it would be a good thing that they spend more money, and that would effectively be what these uh, zero, what do you call them, zero commission, yeah, yes, zero uh, commission or zero fair tourists. So if they're spending less on shopping, did they spend the money uh, elsewhere, or no, no, they they were does... spending they were spending all the money on shopping, but they weren't pay, paying anything
1: for the for the trip itself.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, but how how did how did the implementation of the tourist law affect the travel patterns of the Chinese tourists?
1: I would say there was already a motion. You know, as as with all other travel markets, you go from this. You know, you are very careful. You haven't traveled that much, and then you travel more. You get some travel experience. So, so at first, you you may tend to book a very sort of restricted tour because then you know everything is taken care of. And then, as you get more experienced, you will maybe. Take on more things on your own, or just do longer trips, have maybe more in-depth experiences instead of jumping between attractions. And we already saw this development was already happening that that a bigger a bigger part of the the outbound tourists from China were becoming more independent, kind of semi and we talk about semi independent, and uh, and basically the tourist laws propelled that development because it meant that the price gap between a standard group tour and a semi-independent tour became smaller because you couldn't give away things for free because you knew you are going to make the money back on on commissions from mm-hmm. selling uh, jewelry on the destination anymore. So you could say it, 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 it made the price gap between these different products smaller. And that, of course, maybe incentivizes more people to to buy the in-depth tour if they know they're going to spend money anyway.
0: And you, you said also they, they're traveling semi-independently. Isn't it harder for Beijing to weaponize the outbound tourism industry if the tourists are traveling independently rather than in, in group tours? To, to some degree, I would,
1: uh, I would say it is. I mean, you, it's still difficult to travel completely independently from uh, China. You, you, you most often need to buy some components of the trip, or at least also many consumers just choose to buy some components of the trip through some kind of travel agency. So, so there is still still this control lever, but but of course the micromanagement becomes more more difficult. But still, is controlling streams of tourists to to specific countries and all this, I think is uh, is still an option. But uh, yeah, but in many ways, it is becoming more difficult. And maybe that's also one of the reasons why you know there are some signs or tendencies that that maybe the government in China is starting to care a little bit less about whether. There's a lot of China outbound tourism.
0: One of the reasons that I thought of contacting you for this podcast was that I saw that the Chinese Cultural Institute in Denmark advertised the 2022 China Tourism and Culture Week here in uh, Copenhagen. Does this indicate that China is opening up to foreign tourists again? And perhaps more importantly, are they allowing Chinese travelers to uh, travel out of the country again? Uh, so, allowing uh, outbound travel again as they were uh, before the pandemic? To my knowledge, travel out of China uh, for so non-essential reasons
1: is still restricted. That's the last that I saw. And I think it's just very, very difficult to say because you you kind of think that now things are starting to soften up a little bit. But then, you know, a COVID happens in, in Shanghai, everything closes down and it seems like things are starting all over again. We saw some restrictions uh, at that time getting even tougher than they had been uh, previously. So I think it's... Um, it's difficult to say when things will actually start to open up. Uh, so, so, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing is how is the market going to react? I think there's no doubt that there's a pinned-up demand uh, in the market. Like Chinese people haven't been traveling, and and when they're allowed to, they want to do it. And and that would also mirror other destinations all over the world, right? That when you you're finally opening up, people will start traveling and also traveling abroad but at the same time we also see in other countries that people have learned that there's also things to do in their own country and and I think perhaps even more importantly I'm I'm also sort of not sure if the receiving countries will be as welcoming of chinese tourism as they were before I think in some in some cases you know the covid has allowed some countries to see that okay there are actually other markets that are closer by. That maybe we should just take advantage of those. Maybe it's too expensive to to get Chinese tourists to come here. So, so I think it's it's very difficult to to say where it will land because I think that, for example, for European destinations, or at least some European destinations, pull will be less, but there's a there's a chance that the push will be more because of this pent up demand. So, um, so yeah, I I think it's a, it's difficult to predict how how this is going to end up and also when because. I don't know if anyone can can sort of understand what's going on right now uh, in China in terms of uh, in terms of of how they choose to work with uh, Covid restrictions.
0: yeah, it's uh, all guesswork. but it'll be interesting to see how they open up and uh, when we can see Chinese tourists pouring out into the world once again. Um, yeah, and and I think if, just to
1: add uh, one point, I think, and as we
0: also write in the in
1: the chapter, unless something happens in Taiwan or whatever, right? Or, or if the sort of political situation with Russia develops in in a very unfortunate way, if we sort of assume that things will stay relatively okay, we should see a continuous growth of china outbound tourism because only one-tenth of the population owns a passport. There's a big number of people who haven't traveled. There's a very good Big. Uh, that, so, so the number, as I said, of outbound nights per year is 170 million, but the number of domestic uh, nights is six billion. Right. So there's a huge domestic tourism as compared with outbound tourism. And, and as again, if we look at how outbound tourism normally develops, you start by traveling in your own country, and then after a while, you start venturing abroad. Right. So there should be some of those six billion nights that should be transferred into outbound nights and then we will also have a a big uh, generation of retirees so basically people will be in pension and and there's a tendency that a lot of uh, chinese uh, travelers are a little bit older because then they have more free time to to travel so i think it really it really depends on on a lot of sort of external factors and and also a lot on the and again coming back to the importance of politics right on yeah. what the chinese government chooses to to do uh, and and all, all the governments chooses to do
0: in, in the coming years. I think that's a great final point, given that the, the political climate stays stable, we can expect that the Chinese outbound tourism will pick up where it left off. Yeah. As you say, due to the political climate, European destinations are perhaps less eager than before to actively attract Chinese travelers, at least... Creating independence from China is a priority for some businesses and politicians, but it remains to be seen how the travel industry will react if and when Chinese tourists and Chinese money start rolling in again. Great. Thank you very much, Matthias. And uh, today we have been talking about uh, Matthias thun Janssen and Anders Element Christensen's chapter in the book, Chinese Outbound Tourism Behavior. If you're interested in reading the full chapter, feel free to contact Matthias. Uh, I will write his email in the description of uh, this podcast. Thank you for joining the podcast, Matthias. Thanks for inviting me. My name is Philip Kühl. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.